Good morning. I am John Havener. The scripture for this morning comes from the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel, starting at chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 11. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 233, 233. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a man from Ramathaim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. His His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to each of her sons and daughters, but he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband, Elkanah, would ask. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorposts of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. While she continued praying the Lord's presence, Lord Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. The next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. When Elkanah and all his household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go and explained to her husband, After the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and to stay there permanently. Her husband, Elkanah, replied, do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh 
as well as a three-year-old bull, half a bushel of flour, and a clay jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. There they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. Please, my Lord, she said, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked him for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then he worshiped the Lord there. Hannah prayed, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you, and there is no rock like our God. Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol, and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked's perish in darkness. For a person does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy served the Lord in the presence of the priest Eli. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. And this is also a very long word. Thank you, John, for reading it. Good morning. My name is Godwin, one of the pastors here. First Samuel, I am so pumped. I can't tell you how pumped I am. Um, this is a great, great story. A lot of familiar stories in First Samuel, some maybe unfamiliar stories as well. Uh, but I, I trust the Lord is going to help us and strengthen us as we dive in. Uh, we're going to tackle this in two parts. So chapters 1 through 15, we're going to walk through during the summer months, uh, spring and summer months, and then we're going to take a break for the fall, do something differently. And then in January, we're going to do chapter 16 and following. So all the way up until David and Goliath, chapters 1 through 15, take a break, and then we're going to kick off David and Goliath in January, Lord willing. Before getting into the story this morning, I need to do a five-minute workshop, three-minute workshop on how to approach this particular genre, Old Testament narratives. Very different than what we did last week, Ephesians. Uh, it's very different than even the Gospels. There are things that we need to uh, uh, consider as we're approaching this book. There's kind of certain uh, unique rules that we want to apply. So here's four approaches to uh, Old Testament narratives. First of all, we need to look at this as preached history, as preached history, okay? So we don't know for sure conclusively who the author of this book is, but what we do know is that it's true history 
but it's written to teach and not just inform. Okay? There's a particular message and a purpose and an aim. Uh, the author is trying to help uh, his readers to, to, to know God more and so forth. So it's preached history. Number two, it's important for us to look for the plot arc in each story. So if you remember back in uh, you know, your English classes, there's a setting, and then there's kind of a rise in conflict, then there's some sort of a turn, right? Uh, and then there's a resolution in new setting. So you're going to see that even in our story this morning. And so we want to understand where does the story start and end? What is the conflict? What is the resolution? And most importantly in 1 Samuel, how are the characters organized? We're going to see a lot of comparison between characters. So Eli the priest and his sons with Samuel, we'll see that later. Saul and his son John. Of course, Saul and David. So all of these different comparisons. That's going to kind of unlock what the author's doing. Number three, look for theological patterns within the big picture. So 1 Samuel is situated within, of course, a larger redemptive historical story. And so we need to continually go back to that big story and ask the question, how does this story relate to the bigger story? There's a temptation that we all have, especially in the Old Testament, to moralize. And let me just encourage you, we are not going to be merely moralizing these stories. That's a part of what we do, but we need to consider that big picture. So in our story with Hannah, Hannah, as we'll soon see, is representative of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel points us forward, of course, to the church and in some ways the world. And we'll see that in a few minutes. Number four, look for Jesus to be the ultimate point of 1 Samuel. When Jesus, after his resurrection, took a walk with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, one of the things he said is that all of the Old Testament scriptures find their culmination and fulfillment in himself. Obviously, that includes 1 Samuel. So we need to ask the question, how does this relate to Jesus? And if you think about 1 Samuel, it lays down certain tracks like the kingly office or the person of David. And these tracks, these, uh, these people kind of point forward to Jesus. Okay, so the books of First and Second Samuel were originally one book in the Hebrew Bible. And they follow the book of Judges. You'll see the book of Ruth right before First Samuel, and you'll see the book of Judges before that. Now, the book of Judges, interestingly enough, closes with this statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. You hear that? So that little description in Judges sums up the state of Israel as we're opening up 1 Samuel. They were in crisis. There's no hope. The beginning of 1 Samuel is not a happy beginning. It's a sad start. It's painful. There's no king. Israel and its leaders were unfaithful. And their enemies, the Philistines, were kind of lurking around. And while there were a few faithful, like Hannah, as we'll see, generally speaking, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, does that sound a bit too familiar? <laughs> Seems like that could be a motto of our present age as well, right? Everyone does whatever they see fit. You can make up your own morality. You can decide for yourself what is right. God is not really acknowledged. His ways are not followed. Sometimes God and the Christian faith are openly mocked. You know, the new atheists apparently describe themselves as anti-theists. It's not just that they have a different set of ideas about God. They are actively trying to 
be anti-God. And so the forces of culture seem to be pressing in around us. It feels like today's day we are in trouble. I met with a couple Christian lawyer friends of mine, father and son, this past week, and we were downtown, and uh, we, we had a great conversation. These brothers are very gifted lawyers. They've worked on regional and national cases, so Christian Baker, uh, they worked on that case. Uh, they are very godly men, and I, I really appreciate their, their perspective. Well, their take, especially the father's take, is that in our present day, our cultural forces are not moving our country towards greater health or towards righteousness or godliness. They're, of course, doing the other thing. They're worsening the state of our country. They're, um, they're doing damage. And so as we look at this situation, it's quite a mess, isn't it? And yet, and yet there are two things, two things that are true, not only of, of Israel back then, but of our situation today. There is a, first of all, a faithful remnant of God's people that is trying to carry on. That's true of Israel back here. It's also true of us today. And most importantly, there is a faithful God who will act on behalf of his people, right? It's true here in Israel. It's true in our situation as well. Now, the thrust of 1 Samuel, as you'll see on the screen in that little corner, you can see that little subtitle, 1 Samuel, in search of the king. That's really what's going on in 1 Samuel because for Israel, that was their greatest hope. Ever since Genesis chapter 49, there's a little prophecy embedded there. It talks about a king coming to rule over Israel and provide salvation and, and, and rule and, and kind of to help clean up their mess. And so the nation of Israel is wondering, who is this king and where is he? Where is the one who's going to come back and clean up the mess? Here's the main point of our passage today. You'll see it on your screen. God works in a womb to give us a picture of his work in the world. Okay, so God works in Hannah's womb to give us a picture of his work in the world. I want you to look briefly at where this passage starts in the first eight verses and then where the passage ends because it tells us something about how God works here. You'll notice a certain barrenness, of course, barrenness in, in Hannah's womb. You'll also notice with Eli and Israel, as we're digging into their story a little bit, the, this set of priests, Eli and his sons, as well as Israel, they were spiritually barren. This is where the story starts, but look where the story ends up in chapter 2, verse 11. Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy, and there's Samuel, so we know, first of all, that Hannah has become fruitful, the boy Samuel served the Lord in the presence of the priest Eli. And so we've moved from barrenness to some sort of fruitfulness. There's a hint of that. Now, friends, why is this a good word for us today? Because sometimes it seems like the church is weak. Sometimes it feels like the church is fruitless. Sometimes it feels like the church is barren, spiritually speaking. You know, we invest, we pray, we give, we serve, we love, and nothing seems to come from it. Or sometimes it seems like we as individual Christians, so my life and my holiness and my evangelism is weak or fruitless or barren. Do you ever feel like that? I certainly have felt like this. 
And so we wonder, are the things that we're investing in worthwhile? Are they profitable? Are they eternal in nature? Is God doing something through me or through our church that is profitable? If you wrestle with that, this sermon's for you. Here's the first movement in our story. Number one, God's work in a womb. As we're looking at the first 18 verses, we're going to look at the story details, but then we're going to do some theological reflection and kind of go back and forth, okay? So first, the details of the story, and then theological reflection. So we're going to see a lot in 1 Samuel, political struggle and intrigue and major shifts in how ancient Israel is ruled, uh, epoch-making events, and we're going to fly from sanctuaries in Shiloh to battlefields in Gilboa to you know palaces in, in Jerusalem and so forth. Uh, yet here at the beginning... Notice the writer calls her attention to a woman, a humble woman, living in the backwaters of the hill country of Ephraim, weeping over her dead womb. Why start here? Well, what God will do for this woman is a picture of what he will do for his people, the nation of Israel. That's the punchline. But let's examine this story more closely. Hannah was probably Elkanah's first wife, and because she's barren, he takes another wife. Now, it doesn't help that Hannah's name means favored one. Really? <laughs> and Penina's name means fruitful. Yikes, right? So, so imagine the first introduction. Favored one who is barren. Meet your sister wife fruitful, right? <laughs> it's not, not a fun situation. And Penina's name apparently was true. She bore Elkanah children. We don't know how many. Uh, and, and, and so her, her fruitfulness was evident to all around her. And these small town folks every year would head to big city Shiloh for these worship festivals. And there Elkanah would take the meat he, that he sacrificed and split them up between his family members. Uh, why is this, this interesting story here in chapter 1? Well, I think it's to highlight Hannah's loss, to highlight Hannah's pain. Even though she got a double portion, you have to imagine... Her rival sister wife got so much more. She had kids, right? So it was an annual reminder of her loss, of her pain, and it caused her, as you would imagine, grief. But look at verse 5. Look at the end of verse 5. For he, Elkanah, loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. One of the first mentions of the Lord in 1 Samuel is connected to something hard. This barrenness is not just a physiological matter. It is the Lord who closed her womb. That's not easy for us to hear, is it? It's hard for us to hear that the Lord is sovereign over her suffering. The Lord is sovereign by implication over our suffering. What do we do with that info, right? Well, look at how others responded to this reality. Penina, of course, she mocks. Elkanah pities and tries to, you know, comfort her. Am I not enough? Am I? I mean... I should be better than 10 sons, right? Sounds like a man, right? <laughs> no is the answer to that. <laughs> but then Hannah, what does she do? She prays. You know, we considered naming one of our daughters Hannah, a uh, wonderful name. And so it was Emma, Hannah was second place. It was Lucy, and then Hannah was second place. Uh, just, a, just a great story that we see here. We're all kind of rooting for Hannah, right? But notice her story begins in the ashes. Her pain is sharp. Her pain is constant, right? And it's doubled by her rival mocking her and perhaps eased maybe a little bit by her husband. But who does she turn to, friends? She turns to God. 
We're not a large church, but we're also not a small church. And so I would imagine there's some here, someone here, that is barren. Maybe you know someone who is barren, who would so wish to have a child but can't. I used to foolishly say to friends, you know, all I need to do is tap Jenny on the shoulder and she'll get pregnant. I've stopped making that silly joke because I know too many who cannot have children, who struggle with fertility, who've lost babies. Listen, I can't promise that your prayers will be answered like Hannah's prayers are answered here, but there are encouragements embedded in this story. Hopefully you'll feel that as we move forward for those who are mourning and experiencing a loss of all kinds. Some of you can relate to Hannah all too well. Well, look how she responds, starting in verse 9. She pours out her heart to God through tears. Sometimes we think the more spiritual we are, the more composed we'll be. (laughs) Not always, right? Sometimes the most spiritual thing you and I can do is to weep, to lament. Notice Verses 10 and 11, the descriptions there of her prayer and, 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 and just how she's feeling. Also in verses 15 and 16. Friends, sometimes your tears and my tears, your complaints and my complaints are real expressions of trust. And hear me now, not expressing sorrow can be a sign of mistrust and escape and neglecting your own soul. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the spiritual discipline of lament. You remember a few weeks ago, we, uh, we had Dr. Jones, counseling professor from Southern, he was here, and we talked about this a little bit. This is so important for us to consider. Here's a definition of lament. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Isn't that what we see Hannah doing here? A prayer in pain that leads to trust. Brothers and sisters, do we have room in our spirituality for lament? In a culture where everything is geared to a feel-good experience, it becomes increasingly difficult, even in the church, to lament, which is why I'm so thankful that we have these moments in our liturgy. It's not every Sunday, but some Sundays where we are invited and led to lament as a church. But what about in our community groups? What about in your friendships? What about in your personal lives? Because here's the deal. We need to take our pain somewhere, right? If we don't take it somewhere, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out in, in weird ways, in sideways ways, and it's going to cause damage. And notice Hannah's wonderful example here. It's so instructive. What do we do with an unmet desire for a good thing? What does she do? Notice again, verse 10 and 11. She turns to the Lord. I mean, we, we all cry when things bad happen to us. We all cry out, right? So nobody needs to teach me how to cry out when something difficult comes my way. I do that very naturally. So I start with my wife, Jenny. <laughs> Let's talk, right? And I cry out to her. And, and maybe when she gets kind of sick of it, I go to a friend or, a, or another loved one. And maybe they get sick of it. What do I do? I, I take it to the social media, right? And, and so I complain there. I cry out there. Friends, You can go through an awful, awful time in your life and you can cry out and cry out and cry out and yet fail to cry out to God. Hannah takes it to the Lord. But she does more. Notice she then asks specifically and boldly for help. Give me a son, Lord. And she makes this vow, right? Constant sorrow can create a sort of deadly silence. We, we kind of go inward and downward into despair or denial, and we forget God because the pain is just too much. 
Lament is interesting because it invites us to do just the opposite, to dare to hope that God can actually do something about our situation. This is where Hannah's at, right? She turns to God with her pain, and then she boldly asks God, do something. Friends, if what we see with Hannah is a model for us, if it's important, according to Paul, to weep with those who weep, then please, for God's sakes, <laughs> let your friends be sad sometimes. Let your friends be sad. If you know someone who just got bad news or is going through some, some sort of loss, maybe it's, it's long-term, maybe it's just kind of more acute, and, and maybe just this week, let them be sad. Let them grieve. It's not a sign of spiritual immaturity. It's a sign of their humanity. It's a sign that we live in an age that's marked by sin and evil. Think about Jesus. We were saying earlier, he's a man of what? Sorrows. He believed, he trusted in his father's will. And yet he wept before the tomb of his best friend, Lazarus. He wept in the garden of Gethsemane as he looked forward and saw the cup that he needed to drink. Think about the Apostle Paul, who in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 8, lists just a litany of sorrows. Here's a man who teaches us so well about the sovereignty of God. So friends, if you know someone who is grieving, instead of throwing out Christian platitudes, right? Well, God knows best. Instead of doing that, give your friends space to grieve. Allow them to be sad. One of the best things you can do is to sit there with them in the pain. Don't be like Job's friends. Don't be like Penina. Learn to lament with them. Then the story kind of takes a funny turn in verses 12 through 18. You see the scene shifts a little bit, and Eli the priest is watching her as she's praying, right? And, and she, he, she thinks she's drunk. This guy is supposed to be the spiritual leader in this region, but his leadership is so bad, as we're going to see next week too, his leadership is so bad that he doesn't recognize actual prayer. Under his watch, people didn't really pray. So he fails to recognize that she's, she's connecting with God, this is a sad state of affairs for Israel, especially in Shiloh, right? And Hannah, Hannah clarifies, and, and he leaves her, to his credit, with a blessing. Now, take note of verse 18. Notice she ate, and she no longer despaired. Remember our definition of lament? It's a prayer in pain that leads to trust. So Hannah's not eating, that's how she started, but now she's eating. She's no longer in anguish. It's striking because she doesn't know how God's going to answer her prayer, right? She prays and she's happy to leave it with God. She trusts God's power when she doesn't know God's plan. Isn't that the epitome of faith? There's no special word from God that this is going to work. There's no guarantee. There's no like promise or clear word, right? And yet she's happy to leave it with God. What a model for us, right? Hannah's prayer, just to review, Hannah's prayer of laments. She turns to God with her pain. She asks him boldly, and then she chooses to trust. She chooses to trust, even though she doesn't know what's coming. Now, let's do some theological reflection. What's the bigger picture here? What's going on? Hannah wasn't the only barren woman in the Bible. Can you think of some other barren women in the Bible? There's a lot of barren women in the Bible, right? All of the patriarchal wives, they were barren too. So Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, this is a huge deal. 
This is a huge deal because God had promised way back in Genesis chapter 3, this is the, the curse of the uh, serpent. Do you remember what he promised? He said, listen, I'm going to raise up a child of Eve, a descendant of Eve that's going to come and do what? Crush the head of the serpent. Remember this? So there's a promise all the way back in the third chapter of the Bible. It says, hey, there, there's someone that's going to come up, it's going to be raised up, it's going to be crushing Satan. And so every prominent birth in Israel's history raised the question, is this the one? It's like the Matrix, right? Is Neo the one? Maybe he's the one? I don't know. Let's see. Is he the one? Turns out he's the one. So for Israel, there was a great hope for the promised seed who would come and crush Satan and rule God's people. And so, friends, without children, there is no future for God's people. There's no, ultimately no hope for the world. So what is the author teaching us? Teaching Israel, what is the author teaching us as well? Here's what I think he's saying. Only God, only God can bring something out of nothing. If there's a spiritual barrenness among Israel, if there's spiritual barrenness among the church in your life today, only God can bring life. And so what do we do? Well, we got to do what Hannah did. She pleads with God. So, so we want to plead with God for spiritual life in every place there is spiritual death. Listen, friends, is there spiritual death right now in your marriage? Is there spiritual death in your own soul? Are there places of darkness in your own soul, of unholiness, of unlove? Are there places of darkness and death within faith, church, places of unholiness, unlove? Pour out your heart to, to God like Hannah. Seek the face of the one who puts life in a dead womb and tomb. Listen, there are hundreds of stories, hundreds of stories of men and women here at Faith Church Hundreds of stories of churches, small groups, community groups, marriages, lying in dust and ashes, but rising forth in new life because this is what God does. So pray for that, friends. Pray for that. Hannah's story is, is just as much a story about rivalry as it is about barrenness. Harris, Hannah is part of a faithful remnant, but she's weak and beggarly in comparison with the strong and well-fed Penina and the priests, right? So Elkanah's family, it's kind of a microcosm of Israel. You've got a faithful remnant with Hannah, and you've got an unfaithful remnant with Penina and Eli. Okay, that's kind of how we need to look at this story. Now, now I have a question for you guys. Do we have spiritually anemic Eli's that are running things in the 21st century church today? How about uh, Penina's? Do we have any of these characters today? We have too many of them. We have too many Eli's presiding over godless churches, offering a false Christianity that has no resemblance to authentic New Testament Christianity. Now, I have no problem with larger churches. I've served on staff at larger churches. But some of these mega churches, listen, they're mega because they're not preaching the gospel, they're not teaching the Bible, and they're entertaining more than discipling. It's another Eli who's presiding over these, uh, these churches. We have too many Peninas around as well who settle into a place of false Christianity with a facade of worldly success. And then they look down on the true people of God with scorn. Let me invite you not to look at these folks, these people, these churches with scorn, but rather with prayer. Because here's the deal. We've already said it. Our only hope, their only hope, is in the God who raises the dead. Our only hope is in the God who brings real spiritual life. So again, our first task, what's our first task? It's to plead with God to open the womb. 
Plead with God to open the womb in your life. Plead with God to open the womb at Faith Church in our city to bring life. But there's more, more to the story. Let's go to our second movement. God not only works in a womb, but he works in the world. Looking at verses 19 and following. So look what happens in verses 19 and 20. Here's kind of the climax of the story, the turning point. Of course, God gives Hannah Samuel. Now, we just want to circle, star, and underline this. This is not always how God answers these kinds of prayers, right? We don't want to moralize this too much or kind of enshrine a principle. There's no promise for every barren woman who prays with faith. Hannah's story is part of a bigger story. What God has done for Hannah is a picture for what he will do for Israel. And so God works in a womb to show how he will work in Israel. That's kind of what's going on here. Notice Hannah waits to go back to Shiloh until Samuel's weaned. That makes sense because, you know, he's going to be dedicated to uh, the Lord and he's going to be working with Eli. So he, he needs to have some independence. And this time she goes to Shiloh, not in desperation, but with a heart of thankfulness. Look at the details in verses 24 and 25. She prepares an expensive sacrifice, offers it in Shiloh. She, she brings the boy to Eli finally. And, and friends, make no mistake, her words in verses 26 through 28 are nothing short of a irrevocable dedication. In other words, she's got no thought that she's going to get her boy back. This is a permanent situation. It's almost as if Eli is his new father. And so for Hannah, this is a holy moment. It's an important moment. I'm reminded of Psalm 127. It paints a picture. Remember this Psalm? It paints a picture of children as arrows in, uh, in, in a quiver. You guys remember this? And the implication is that at some point, a mom and dad's going to shoot this arrow out into the world for the glory of God. So those arrows are are the Lord's, and they're entrusted for a time to mom and dad. And it just just makes me think, many of you are doing this right now, in the weeks weeks coming. You've got uh, young men and women uh, that are graduating from high school or college or maybe moving towards somebody in marriage. For Hannah, this moment comes far earlier than she would have imagined. I mean, she's got this little boy she's got to say goodbye to. It reminds me of a couple Jenny and I are really good friends with out in Boston, and uh, they decided to go overseas to, to be missionaries in the Middle East. And, and, and his family, the husband's family, they're not Christian. The, the wife's family is Christian. And it was just so fascinating to see, and it's really sad, uh, her Christian parents gave them such a hard time. You're taking, taking away grandkids. You're taking away our kids. And his non-Christian parents we're more open to this missionary endeavor. It's really sad, isn't it? What about you? What about me as parents, as grandparents? Will you faithfully entrust your kids to the Lord? Even if that means they settle far away from you or move overseas from you or they make decisions that you think is unwise or risky, will you trust that God is the one that's over their life? Will you dedicate your children week in and week out to the Lord like Hannah. And we got child dedications coming up next week. It's timely, Mother's Day. These are some good reminders for us. Now, finally, we see in chapter two, notice, verses one through 10, we see this song, this prayer that Hannah prays. It doesn't really feel like a song for a barren woman who just had an infant, right? She's like not a lot of details on that. I mean, she's rejoicing in the Lord, so we see her joy, but then she kind of like goes broad in scope in terms of the content of her prayer, right? What we have here is something so special. Hannah's story, again, is a picture of Israel's story. Think about it. Like Hannah, 
Israel is beset by enemies, the Philistines, and they're living in dark and spiritually barren times. But also like Hannah, God is about to intervene powerfully to bring new life to Israel. And so in chapter one, we see Hannah's lamenting. She's pouring out her heart to God. Here she's rejoicing in chapter two. And as we examine the details of this song, it's clear Hannah, by the Spirit, understands the birth of her boy as something far more than just about personal vindication. She knew that when the Lord starts opening up barren wombs, he was beginning to act for his people. It happened with Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. It's happening again here. This is a special time, not just for her, but for her people. That's why she prays like this. Take note. Take note. Her song is full of two things. First of all, it's full of the Lord. She's praising God. She's rejoicing in God. Seven mentions of the Lord, and over a dozen times his works are referenced. And that's why she says in verse 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. She's praising God. So it's, it's full of God, but it's also full of reversals. You see that? Chapter 1, Hannah was weeping in, in anguish. Now she's singing, my heart rejoices. In chapter one, she's being provoked by her rival. Now she's saying, my mouth boasts over my enemies. But it's not just personal either. Her heart leans into her people's situations with these bad priests, with these Philistines all around. And then what does she say? She starts talking about bows of great warriors being broken. The feeble people of Israel clothed with strength. The Lord raising the poor from the dust. And almost by way of summary, at the end of verse 70, it says, he, the Lord, humbles and he exalts. There it is. He humbles and he exhorts. It's striking, isn't it? She's expecting for God to do to Israel what he's already done for her. What's the lesson for us today? Perhaps Hannah is a picture of the church in our generation. Now, we're favored by God, but we appear at times to be barren, <laughs> you know? We're praying for converts. We're praying for new spiritual descendants. We're praying for church plants. We're longing for more baptisms, but we lack those new converts, don't we? Instead, like Hannah, we are mocked by our rivals. We are more often humbled than exalted in this life. So, so friends, hear me now. We need Hannah's story. We need Hannah's song to remind us that the gospel will triumph to remind us that God will vindicate his name in due time. These reversals, they took place in the history of Israel. They will eventually take place in the history of God's people, the church as well. So I don't know, I don't know where you're at right now, whether you're high in life or whether you're low, whether your circumstances are good or painful. But Hannah invites us to ask this question, can we see the bigger picture? Can we identify and trust God's cosmic promises? You know, it's tempting right now to believe that God's provision of a new associate pastor, that's going to do it for faith church, for families who have left to return, for, for a dozen more new families to come, for new initiatives, for new programs, for new life here at faith church. It's tempting to put our hope, to put our trust in these things. And sure, we pray for these things. I can't, I can't tell you how much I've been praying for these things, but can we derive joy and resilience and spiritual strength from seeing the big picture, knowing that the church will triumph? 
knowing that God will vindicate his name in due time. These things are going to happen. These are the cosmic promises that we see embedded in the word of God. You see, friends, we must see like Hannah in order to sing like Hannah. Though humbled for a time, exaltation is coming. That's what we got to see. And our confidence, listen, our confidence is even stronger than Hannah's, right? We're, we're on this side of the cross and an empty tomb. And so we know more. We see more. We therefore should feel more. Our spiritual sight is even stronger than hers. D-Day is in our rear view mirror, guaranteeing the final victory ahead, right? So we can sing even more than Hannah. We can sing songs like one of my favorite hymns, Be Thou My Vision. That last stanza. Listen. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. It's all forward-looking. I'm confident in the future that you have for us. Then the stanza goes, heart of my own heart, whatever befall, I don't know what's going to happen today or tomorrow. Still be my vision, O ruler of all. That's Hannah-like confidence right there, right? You can hear a note running all the way through the song. You can hear a note in Be Thou My Vision, a note of joyful confidence. There's no note of resigned defeat, as if God's people will turn, uh, take a bad turn at some point. There's no bad turn that's eventually going to lead to somewhere awful. It's going to lead to the promised land, even though we can't fully see all of it. Now, one last observation before we close. <laughs> I know this sermon feels like, oh, this could have been like three sermons. I know, believe me. There's just so much juicy stuff in here, and I have to close with this. I would not be faithful if I didn't close with this. I want you to notice there's two references to horns in Hannah. You see it in verse 1. You see it in verse 10. A horn in the Bible is a picture of strength, uh, a picture of vindication, a picture of victory. Okay, so imagine a rhino's horn jabbing its, you know, its prey and then kind of raising the horn in victory up. That's kind of the picture that we see here. So in verse 1, Notice she says, God is giving me the victory. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. But then there's verse 10. Look at verse 10. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Here it is. He will give power to his king. Whoa, where'd that come from? There's no king around. <laughs> what, what is this? Could this be a prophecy? And then it says, he will lift up the horn of his anointed. What is happening here? She believes, Hannah believes, she's empowered by the Spirit, she's inspired by the Spirit. She believes that what God has done for her, he will do for Israel in the form of a king. God's king is coming. That's what she's, she's singing here. And when he comes, he will turn the world upside down. You see, this little boy, Samuel, would grow up and anoint who? David. We'll skip Saul for a second, right? David. And God would do what with David? He would lift up his horn. He would lift up his horn, and, and the kingdom that David would establish would be a beautiful, powerful, wonderful kingdom. But it was only for a time because David died. But David was only the first fulfillment of this prophetic word here. Did you know that anointed can be translated differently? 
can be translated as Christ or Messiah. Samuel's a lot like another kingmaker too, right, John the Baptist? Remember his story? He was the final prophet, prepared the way for another Christ, another David, Jesus. And John the Baptist's mom, Elizabeth, was also barren. This is not accidental. You see, friends, when God does a big thing, barrenness is often involved. Why is that? Because he wants to make it utterly clear that salvation will be accomplished only through him, only by his power, only because of his grace. And Jesus' mother, Mary, do you remember this? This is Luke chapter 1. She would sing a similar song of praise. Remember this? Because Hannah's story is the beginning of David's rise from the ashes to his throne. Likewise, Mary's story is the beginning of another David's rise from the ashes to his throne, the ultimate king. It's not just Hannah. It's not just Israel. It's not just David that went low before God exalting them high. Isn't this the very path of our Lord Jesus? who humbled himself, who took the form of a servant, who became obedient to death. But then wasn't it God who raised him and gave power to his king, his son, lifting up the horn of his Messiah in victory and vindication? So friends, which side of history are you on? There are two kingdoms. There are two kings, two peoples, two paths. One path says, crown now hell later. The other path says cross now, heaven later. There will be those who live under false pretenses of religion like Eli and his sons, and there will be those who live in the ashes with Hannah and Jesus and the true church. There's a clear fault line running through history. Which side are you on? Sam Zwemer, the so-called apostle to the Islam, lost two daughters in service of Jesus over the course of eight days. Barclay Buxton, a missionary to Japan, also lost two daughters in service of the king. At one point, the average expectancy of missionaries in West Africa was six months, but they still went wave after wave after wave. Was it worth it? Yeah, it's worth it. Maybe as a Christian, you made certain choices that limit your income for the sake of the gospel. Maybe you give more of your time to serve rather than indulging yourself. Maybe you choose the mission trip over the vacation. Maybe you've chosen to be a church leader in a draining church situation. Maybe you make choices at work for Jesus that puts you at risk. Maybe you are childless like Hannah, but have chosen not to accept fertility treatment that would mean unused human embryos are destroyed. The message of Hannah's story is this. It is absolutely worth it. Because we are the peculiar people who say, cross now, crown later. Suffering now, glory later. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now to consider the passage and prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.